Good evening. This is Cinema 60. You had what we call a functional or hysterical amnesia. Oh, swell. That explains everything. <laughs> All right. Well, let's look at it another way. You possessed information you didn't want to reveal. And also the experience, the beating, was too painful to tolerate. So a as a defense mechanism, a protection, and a protection against revealing the invasion plans, you just washed it out of your brain. It wasn't a conscious effort on your part. You had no control over it. It just happened. Well, I don't understand all of it, but I'll take your word for it. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. We have a very special guest here today, which sounded insincere, but I mean it sincerely. <laughs> Danny Reed. Hi, Danny. Hey. You may know Danny as only Danny from his website, which is all about pre-code films, which is uh, www.pre-code.com. An awesome source of information and movie reviews by Danny, all about films made in Hollywood from 1930 to 1934. So uh, pre-code, of course, meaning the pre-Hays Code censorship, which tried to clean everything up to be about the perfect nuclear Christian family and eventually putrefied to what we know as 1960s cinema. Okay. <laughs> Yay. Yay. It's sort of a before and after sort of scenario here. Yeah, that's what I really like about the, the 60s is you kind of you get to that end of the Hays Code censorship starting like 67 with the year Pictures of the Revolution mm -hmm. sort of thing. The movies made in 1960 are not the ones that are going to be made in 1970, you know? So there's this wide variety of Hollywood just trying to become, like, a mature adult. You know, they saw things that Italy was doing. They saw what France was doing. They're like, we're going to make adult pictures, too. And then they just run at nudity, and they run at violence. And sometimes it works, and a lot of times it did not. So it's really... 60s are really interesting. That's why I was really excited that you guys do this podcast, because I like learning about the 60s, so... Precode.com was actually, uh, Jenna may not even know this, but was kind of a huge inspiration for the start of Cinema 60. I, uh, I didn't even have a podcast in mind when I proposed this to Jenna. I, I sort of wanted to do something with the 60s that was a website that looked and felt and had the kind of information that Precode.com did. We went with the podcast direction, so there, there's less of that. But uh, you, you definitely were an inspiration <laughs> to me anyway. Oh, well, I appreciate it. I, um... I was always fascinated. I watch a lot of movies. I, I see you guys do as well, obviously. Um, and I just always thought it was really interesting to kind of just pick an era and like drill down into it and like learn everything you can about that era. Like when I started the blog, which is about almost 10 years ago now, you know, I picked this era. Like I'd only seen like the Forbidden Hollywood collections. I was just fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the movies being made. And, you know, I, I like to kind of learn all these stories. You learn these intricacies of the era and you just become so immersed in it that it's almost like being back then. It's obviously not, but you kind of, you begin to understand like a different time period. I find so much interest and so much fascination in that. So that's why I, that's why I really enjoy listening to your podcast and guest starring on it, obviously. But uh, I really enjoy listening to it because you guys do that deep dive. You look at all these different things um, and you connect genres as well as what you were really interested in foreign and domestic films. So I find it all very fascinating. Yeah, there's such a huge difference between early 60s movies and late 60s movies, though, that I'm not sure we've quite pinpointed the thing that really unifies the 60s as a whole, whereas with pre-code you have this four-year period where it's uh, you really have just this concrete 
block of stuff that all is, you know, they're not all the same movie, but they all are very much, you know, coming coming from the same place and have have a lot of the the same stuff going on. It's true. I mean, it's kind of interesting as I've drilled down, though, is you kind of realize, you know, 1930, it's still very staticky. You know, they made a quarter of the movies being made in 1930 are musicals because that's what they thought made money. And then they made so many terrible musicals that there are no musicals in 1931. <laughs> um, and then 1932, 42nd Street happens. So you get like 1930, 31 is its own era. 32, 33 is this very... That's when you get like the best pre-codes. You get I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Gold Diggers in 1933. Um, and you get some really, really cool stuff there. And then in 1934, where obviously the studios are hurting and the Catholics are coming in with a code, you really get this kind of like mix of we're going to do uh, everything with Shirley Temple and also this like real stark desperation of, you know, in this movie, Tarzan's naked. You know, we're just going to see Tarzan full frontal. Maybe that'll get people in the theater. So 34 is kind of, it's also, it's really fascinating own era. So it's one of those things that you wouldn't know if you're just like picking one or two movies and going through all of cinema. But if you start deep diving, you start to see these trends and it really, it really fascinates me. And as soon as I'm done with pre-code, I'll move on to the late thirties. And I think that's going to be about 20 years. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to moving on and seeing what 1935 has to offer. Yeah. I, I think uh, the difference between pre-code and post-code is you can really pinpoint at, at how Tarzan and Jane are dressed in, in those movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's also kind of interesting, you know, this, this overlap in the sixties here, we're getting, Clark Gable and, and Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, they're, they're all still alive. <laughs> and they're all working, yeah. uh, albeit in dramatically lesser parts than they deserve, perhaps. <laughs> or, or TV. A lot of them have, are on TV at this point. Yeah, they're, they're all holding on to their stars, but with claw marks, uh, visibly. Misfits is like, what, 61, 62? Because that's a real like passing of an era sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Even Not just for like Clark Gable, but it's just you know also for Marilyn Monroe. And she's kind of this big icon of the 50s. You have that real kind of interesting handoff to, you know, that loss of a continuity there. It is 61. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have corrected you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's the thing about being a film nerd is you can always kind of get it within like a three year, if you kind of guess. And, you know. That's why I suck at trivia. I'm always three years old. Well, you know, Gable died in 62 and so did Monroe. So it's their last, you know, I, I, have, excuse, I, have, I have infinite excuses for getting that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> But do you do you find Danny? Do you find it gr- fascinating that these people manage to live through this transition, or do you think it's a little depressing to see what <laughs> happened? It kind of depends on the star, more or less. I think you know some people suffered, some people succeeded. Like Stanwyck, her her early thirties are vastly different from the late thirties, which are vastly different from the forties when she starts going to film noir. Um, Gable is very much a lot sexier, a lot more dangerous. They try to they try to capture it again in Gone with the Wind, but they don't quite make it. So it's kind of interesting. It's it's you know how they always say how they always say, and this is not true, but you know so many stars disappear between the end of the talkies and the end of or the end of the silent era and the beginning of the talkies. And you know there's always these transition periods. I always look in my own life as as weird as this is. I think back to my high school movie, like the big movie stars when I was in high school was like. Rachel Lee Cook and Freddie <laughs> Prince Jr. You couldn't do a movie with Freddie Prince Jr. and not lose money. Every girl in my high school was obsessed with him. And I think about how bizarre that is now. Because <laughs> you, like, Rachel Lee Cook's on, like, TNT or something every once in a while. Or she plays, uh, she was, like, Nancy Drew's mom. And it's just such a it's such a weird thing to just kind of contextualize that in my own life. And I think about, for people who are older than me, which there are quite a few, and people who are younger than me, which there are also quite a few, 
it's just how you, you see how these eras progress and move along. And you think about these stars who were huge stars 10 years ago and everyone's completely forgotten about. Or, you know, um, especially right now when there's stars who kind of disappeared for a decade. Like Gene Hackman is still alive. Now, he hasn't done a movie since Royal Tenenbaums, I think. And I think three? it's, I think like it's that, that uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt uh, Sigourney Weaver movie. Uh, Heartbreakers? Uh, Heartbreakers? Yeah. <laughs> or no, Welcome to Mooseport. It's something terrible. It's oh, something God. much more shameful yeah. than Royal Tenenbaums. That would put me off, too. <laughs> I would be so thrilled to see Gene Hackman back in a bit part, even. Like, I would be so happy to see him again. Just Wes Anderson puts him on, like, a stroller and pushes him through the background of a shot. You'd be Perfect. like, Perfect. the best movie. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's this difference between dying young or moving on with your era, or these little micro eras that happen. There's just, there's so much to film history. There's so many little bits and pieces it's just fascinating i, don't I love that's my favorite thing about watching these you know really investing in these 60s movies is because i'm discovering all the freddie prince juniors and rachel lee cooks of of the 60s <laughs> like all all the all the actors that that you know everybody knew at the time but nobody remembers it all anymore yeah i just had somebody say to me that that he was like i really love your podcast and i really like 60s movies but maybe not as much as you guys <laughs> and I, was, I was like you know look you gotta you gotta suffer for all the good stuff you know it's all the better when you watch all the terrible stuff i, I did enjoy the oss episode quite a bit it didn't Thank make you. me want to watch them which, which I, don't, I don't think was the point it didn't make me want to watch them though <laughs> Well, you chose for us to discuss today uh, your your pick of the 60s here, which was 36 Hours, which is directed by George Seaton and starring James Garner in Eva Marie Saint. I find this like a really fascinating, weird little B-movie. It's 1964. It's 20 years after World War II. And we're making this movie about Nazi Germany where uh, a lot of the Nazis come across as surprisingly sympathetic. And it's a real interesting kind of like a, a mystery because every single person who walks in this theater, even in 1964, no matter how blasted you are out of your mind you pretty much know that the battle of Normandy went okay. Right. Like, you're not like, oh, I I can't remember how Normandy went. Oh, this is, I can't figure this out. But the movie starts with, like, here's a guy who knows what's going to happen in Normandy. It's June 4th. He gets captured by Nazis. And the, the tension immediately is, well, is he going to give away the plans to Normandy? And everyone in the audience is like, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Except this does. is the Twilight Zone era. So, and I... <laughs> You know, it could be a Twilight Zone type scenario where the the Normandy invasion does not happen. That that's part. I remember the first time through, I was suspecting that that's what this was. That would have been a pretty uh, bold stroke. I'll give you that one. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting because he does give it away. Like, um... so let, let me just give the plot real quick for people who have not seen it. Spoilers, but there's no way to talk about this film without spoiling it and as you just said the twist is sort of not <laughs> much of a twist so um james garner is a u.s army major named jeff pike who has traveled to portugal to meet a contact and make sure that the nazis don't know about this invasion of normandy and when he's there he gets drugged and kidnapped and he wakes up in what he thinks is america 
But we know it is actually an insanely elaborate scheme that Nazi soldiers have been training in for months and months to sound and act American just so that they can fool Jeff specifically into thinking it's been six years since the war was over, therefore getting information from Jeff on what's actually going to happen re-Normandy. <laughs> um, so they do things like they dye his hair gray and they add eye drops to his eyes while he's sleeping so that it makes his vision worse. And they make fake radio stations and they pretend he had lived for this past six years with amnesia. And he's sort of come out of it and gone back into it several times, which is to explain why he lost six years. And in the meantime, he married Eva Marie Saint, who plays Nurse Anna. And uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, I this is the first time I've watched this and I loved it. I thought this was really fun. And like you said, for something where you know what's going to happen, there are actually a lot of really smart and interesting little twists about how things get found out that I found just totally enjoyable. Never mind that the characters are really interesting in this, which is really the thing that's that's carrying it along. And this um this was based on a short story by a uh, Roald Dahl called Beware of the Dog, which is also this sort of about Nazis tricking an American, but he he kind of finds out a lot quicker and it just ends with him refusing to break and this kind of goes way way further. Did you like this part? I really like this movie. I mean, it's all... It's Considering just you don't plot. like James Garner or Nazis? <laughs> I love James Garner as, like, Brett Maverick or, or uh, you know, Jim Rockford, but he, as a romantic lead in some of these 60s movies, he's kind of a dud. But, uh, yeah, he's fine. I don't think that he's a terribly interesting character in this movie. They don't get real into his background much. You don't really know what's driving him other than he's a good American who doesn't want to give away the, the invasion plans. I mean, I think Eva Marie Sane is a much more interesting character with her background. And she's been uh, taken from a concentration camp to be his nurse, his fake nurse, because she can speak English. And so you get a lot about wh why she's there and, and her, her motivations. But uh, Pikes are, are just like, he's, he's just a good, upstanding American. But plot-wise, I think this movie is fantastic. It really keeps you on the edge of your seat. Even the second time through, knowing where it was headed, I still got a got a real kick out of how it plays with your, your sympathies where the you do sort of hope that these Nazi bastards succeed in getting this information out of Pike <laughs> in some weird way. Well, Danny, you said that you had chose this in part because we, on a previous episode, were talking about how flat Nazis can be in film. And you thought this was a good example of otherwise. Yeah, the, the movie gives us basically like three different Nazis throughout the film. Um, one of them is Rod Taylor, the god, the man, Rod Taylor, uh, one of my favorite stars. And he's, he's this scientist. He'd been raised in America. I think they say he was from Chicago for 16 years. He comes over to Germany. He's trying to figure out how to help uh, German soldiers with PTSD. And then he like he figures out this is the, he can do an immersion where they pretend the war is over and the soldiers come out of their shells and they feel better, but then they have to they slowly wean him back into real life. But then the military sees this and sees you know oh we could use this to fool enemy soldiers into thinking the war is over and get all their secrets. So Rod Taylor is very driven in that he's he really believes in his process and his ideas, but it's been perverted and he he's not always comfortable with that. So that makes him a really interesting conflicted character. Um, the other Nazi is Warner Peters as an SS officer who is comically evil. Not quite Hogan's Heroes, but he's uh, always like, I am a practical man. He's always looking out for himself. And he's very he's very representative of your typical Nazi thug. He's anti-intellectual. He dismisses the doctor's work when it starts to work. He's like, I'm on your team. I'm going to take all the credit. And then immediately 
the moment it looks bad, he jumps ship, uh, discredits everything, even when it's really like obvious that, that it is going to be Normandy, that they'd fooled them into thinking it was Calais. He doubles down on everything because he's so fascinated with, um, so interested in self-preservation. He just becomes a very interesting Weasley character. Um, and then the third Nazi is the minister. He, I mean, he's not necessarily a Nazi. He's a German civilian, but he helps smuggle people over the border. And he has this very uh, mercenary approach to life where it's just like, you know, I've got to make all my money during this war so that I'll be able to survive between the wars. And that's just a very fascinating kind of like character who's, you know, they've seen World War One and World War Two is here and he's just figuring out how to make a living. Now, he's very like joking and very pleasing, but he's also very much like, no, I need payment if I'm going to sneak you over the border. I need to do this. It's all business to him. So it's very interesting just to see these three very different typical um, stereotypes kind of played out. And again, this is 20 years after World War II. Um, there is a lot about the Holocaust in here as well with Anna's character. So you kind of see all these different aspects of German society. Now, uh, Jenna, during your summary, you did say they're they fooling him to think they're in America. No, they're fooling him to think he's in a German hospital camp in Germany. All right, yeah. damn it's it. It's okay. <laughs> um, I do like all the digs they get in on, on like, oh, the war ended and they took all the SS out in the streets and shot them. The SS officers like trying not to like scream and get angry and throw a fit. He's my favorite. I love Otto Schenk, the bad Nazi, the Weasley one, the, the practical man. Yeah. See, I do like I do like the evil Nazis, but he's. Uh, I think it's a great performance. I've seen that that actor before, Werner Peters. I never knew his name, but he's a really solid character actor, and he does a great job, sort of flip flopping between this Nazi officer playing all sides at once, just for his own self preservation and and to to move ahead, move up in the ranks. Yeah. So I actually have a, a master's degree in software engineering, which is a lot of just project management stuff, which I'm sure is super fascinating to people. But it's really interesting to see this movie as kind of like a lens through organizational bias, where once Hitler's made up his mind, this is what we're going with. Or, you know, once we have this narrative, we cannot break from it. And, you know, it's really interesting to see the Germans become obsessed and convinced that they have this idea of what's going to happen and nothing will change their mind no matter what the proof is. And you watch Warner Peters and his superior just squirm and like burn all the evidence and like, uh, we never knew this. You better go kill the people who told us. And it's just, it's really interesting as kind of a perspective of kind of a 50s country as a business perspective of things, which I thought was interesting too. And it's also why Gerber's revenge when he finally gets to get it is so satisfying. <laughs> I mean, I've, who hasn't been in a situation like that where you're like, I'm telling you how it's going to turn out. And then it turns out that way. And then you uh, try and kill everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rod Taylor is so great in this. He just is very, like, even and sympathetic, but you can tell there's this real intensity, like, underneath him. He's amazing, too, because you can absolutely see why they would have believed him in his idea enough to have spent months and months doing this and training for this. Yeah. And that, I think, is the, maybe the, the one hurdle uh, for people to, to get over in this film is that, yes, they spent months and months training up, reading about Jeff and his life, learning every aspect about him that they could possibly find in order to create this as you said, Twilight Zone style village where everyone knows his name and everyone has perfect American accents and they all try their best to, to act like they are either, you know, Germans who have, who have been Americanized or Americans who are sick and waiting around. And uh, it's totally implausible, but it's wonderful. Like it, it totally works because he's such a, he's an intelligent, well-spoken guy. And you're like, yeah, okay, maybe they did try this, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, this movie really has a lot of not just Twilight Zone, but like uh, Mission Impossible, right. which I think is sixty six. That's two years later. Uh, but Mission Impossible is one of my favorite TV shows. So it's a, it's not character driven, but it's a lot of like here is the plot. How are people going to break through this? How are they going to solve this problem? And so this movie shares a lot of similarities to it, where you're you're given this very you know nefarious government organization that is going to go and do a lot of very spectacular play acting to work through this scenario to try and get the information they want. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they were inspired by this movie to some degree. Well, in the first half of the movie is a con man movie, but you're so used to seeing that kind of story told from the protagonist's perspective that you're sort of naturally inclined to want the con to work. Or, you know, it's like a heist movie, like in Ocean's Eleven, like the, this elaborate plan that you just want, you want to see the results that they have that they planned and uh in this case it's nazis so you're you're really conflicted <laughs> like oh i don't <laughs> do, do you know my my uh you know my head says i don't i don't want them to find out but my heart is like oh let's 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 see if this actually works i i love the scene where when james garner finally figures it all out uh which i thought the way that he figures it out i thought was really intelligent and i really enjoyed it was just like a small little detail that Uh you could see coming because there's a line that happens in the film and you're like of course that's there for a reason yeah yeah but he plays it so well like his realization Chekhov's gun planted Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's super. It, it's really naturally done and, and integrated. And then he's sitting around with Gerber, and it's this wonderful scene because on one hand you have Gerber talking about, oh man, I spent all these months doing this, <laughs> only to be undone by this stupid thing. And he he says, I got to know you as well as Robinson Crusoe because I I was reading about you all the time. I I feel like I do know you. Like I actually, it's like this weird like you know fiction turned reality. Like he was excited to. To, I don't know, cosplay with him, you know, like engage with him. And even Garner says, I feel almost bad I messed it up for you. <laughs> it's totally because, I mean, it was clearly, it was a lot of hard work, you know, and, and, and you do feel for him. And as you said, it's like on one hand, and then even I think like really quickly afterward, they talk about how he was born in America, um, Gerber was, and you're like, ah, oh, creep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of a, a a nasty trick they play on you. They they cast this you know super American Rod Taylor who speaks with an American accent the entire time and very quickly forget that he is actually a Nazi and he mm-hmm. you know he becomes the sympathetic Nazi and it's so and that's that's the reason because it's it's he just seems like this this all American dude who of course wants the best for our country it also helps that he's very sympathetic towards anna who's like a very interesting character she's not the usual romantic lead you get in movies like this where usually you know it's very like here's this extra blonde bimbo and now you're gonna run away with her especially in this era no offense (laughs) but um totally (laughs) yeah this is um this is she's a holocaust survivor she's been in auschwitz and they gave her this you know you speak english you can play this part and if you mess up you're going back to auschwitz and Gerber is very sympathetic towards Anna. He works with her. He's trying to help her escape. Not necessarily escape, but he's trying to help her get out so that she doesn't have to worry about that anymore. And so it creates this very interesting dynamic where he is, like, for all intents and purposes, like, he is what we would consider, like, a good guy. He's trying to use his position to leverage to help people who are obviously in a really bad position. But in the meantime, he's also helping out the Nazis. So, you know, it's it's a real interesting um, character. And like you guys were saying, Jeffrey Pike, Garner's character, is very dull. Like, he is... Obviously, just like we have an American guy, put him in here and go. 
Um, it's not the usual Garner kind of more of a cowardly thing, but it's very interesting to compare and just see how much depth Gerber is given as opposed to Pike. That's one of the reasons that really fascinates me about this movie is it takes this typical American stereotype and kind of sticks him in this very gray situation with these characters who have a lot of different impulses and pushes. Anna is so interesting just in the way that she behaves from the play acting part, but also to the part where she she tries to sneak Garner cyanide at one point so that he doesn't have to undergo the SS interrogation. And then she clumsily messes it up and then Gerber goes to her and says, like, that seemed kind of planned. Like, is it because you're guilty about what you're doing or is it guilty about what's going on? It's just, she's such an interesting character and there's so much there. It's just, it's very fascinating to me. She is wonderful. And she is really, as you said, exciting because you don't expect anything from her because it's a 60s film and she's blonde and attractive, you know? Like, there's just... And yet she she sort of turns around and undercuts absolutely every expectation that you have for her and that she is never a drag. She's never a burden <laughs> on anyone. Um, the scene where she gets slapped, which I feel like is like an inevitable scene in most 60s films. She turns around and he says, you don't look hysterical. A Garner says, you don't look hysterical enough. He slaps her really hard in the face. And she says, I used up all my tears and just... <laughs> walks away and you're like damn girl you know like <laughs> it's awesome and then she also has that um that sort of heartbreaking scene where when he realizes what's happening and he uh makes her admit who she is and she says look i'm in it with you i'm also kind of a prisoner here and she talks about this she has a speech about the camps and she talks about how being in those camps you think you're all in it together and then uh, basically you get starved and tortured and everyone you know and love dies and everyone starts to turn against each other and it's hard to to care about anyone anymore. I've, I've been through so much shit and she talks about being used and abused by uh, guards and she talks about you know women who would sell out their own children for a scrap of bread kind of stories but it's really does it it really reinforces why her character motivations and who she is and what you can kind of expect from her and you never fully trust her until she's finally in a position where she's kind of can see the the light at the end of the tunnel which she never seems to want to get too too optimistic about either which was also a great touch definitely yeah i like that the scene where she and garner after they've escaped are hiding out underneath this old house and um He's trying to help her stay warm because it's cold and it's miserable and they're on the run from the Nazis. And, um, and she just she just shakes him off like, no, I don't, I'm not interested no matter what, buddy. And it's just a really good, right. like, you know, you don't expect that in, in this kind of thriller or anything. She's just this very hard-bitten, uh, very strong character who's gone through so much. And it just really kind of helps center the movie to a degree um, and reminds you that, yeah, the playful... Gerber is not a good guy. Like, even if he's trying to help her, there's still, you know, Auschwitz over that way, you know? There's also a nice little moment in that scene um, where they're hiding, where there's a, you, there's a, a Nazi soldier that you think is going to discover them because he's looking down in the hole where they are, and he just sees a, a mama bird and, and uh, you know, her, her chicks, and, and uh, he just gets all sentimental. And it's, it's another just, like, quick, nice, humanizing moment for, you know, a Nazi, which you don't... <laughs> You don't often get in these kinds of movies. Yeah. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> I, no, I, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. It, it is. It's really. It is really fascinating. And and as you were saying, Danny, I I love that there's no romance in this. I love yeah. that they don't try and shove that in there. And that Garner kind of tries a little bit. And even when he does try, he's 
he's never too creepy about it. <laughs> it feels natural when he's just trying to be nice to her and, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, and he even says to her when he does put his jacket on her, she says, don't touch me. He says, look, I'm not going to try anything. This isn't exactly the time or the place. <laughs> She's like, no, I don't care. Just don't touch me. Yeah. Uh, and it's totally, yeah, it's justified and it's, it, it is, it's fascinating. And I think that's, it's kind of funny too, because Garner, like, as you guys said, Garner is, the the least amount of uh, i don't know character in this film he becomes number one he becomes interesting through how other characters treat him mm. like i was saying with uh, how much gerber seems to respect him uh, you really suddenly care more about garner as a character because you're kind of filling in these blanks in your head of so here's some guy who's, who's pretty intelligent uh to some degree and and uh you know, the fact that he's so interested, maybe, maybe I could be a little more interested. And also just the way that um, he, what he brings out and everyone around him is also just so fascinating. So, I mean, the way this is written is just, again, I mean, as you're saying, it's like, here, here we are being like, well, who's not to, you know, pretty interesting (laughs) guys. (laughs) I do like the way this movie um, plays with the past because it's made in 64 and it's set in 41. And so they make these jokes, these little jokes, quote unquote, where, like, uh, Pike discovers newspapers that say, like, Roosevelt retires from the White House. President Wallace, who was Roosevelt's vice president in 1941, is now the president. And it's just this very interesting where back then, this was a really good detail, where back then they didn't know where the future was going. So Gerber is saying, oh, well, the next president's obviously going to be who's going to be vice president now. And then um, I like the detail that uh, Pike is wearing like very kind of 50 suits when they bring him back. Like they have this kind of big, bigger collars and it's this nice touch where obviously for the sixties, they know what people look like back in the fifties, even though this is in 41, we're going to pretend like it's the fifties. And so there's this very interesting kind of design choices they made to try and make this, make various points look like this is definitely 1941 or is this, you know, 1948 or seven or what have you. Um, so I really like all the different ways they play with time. Uh, the, the way the movie opens is with the newsreel footage of World War II, um, of like, Hitler's really nervous about Normandy, what's going on? And then they move right into that really amazing uh, Dimitri Tiumikin score. I own this soundtrack on CD. Uh, I don't think they released more than a dozen copies of it. It's really great. I will tell you, the, the love theme, that's also in quotes, love theme, the sad music they play whenever Ava Marie Saint is talking about her past, there is actually a recorded song to that called um, The Heart Must Learn to Cry. And I, I'm going to go ahead and do you guys and your listeners a favor. <clears throat> Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. <laughs> the heart must learn to cry. Do, 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 do. It's awful. It is, <laughs> it is the most painful, like, simpering, <laughs> cheesy, melodramatic song. It is so lucky they did not put this in the movie other than his orchestration because <laughs> you would just like your ears would start bleeding immediately um well the movie the, has a mess up somewhere right you know yeah <laughs> well see i, re- I really i liked the, the score i thought his jamkin's score was really dramatic but it really made this movie feel kind of old-fashioned like i mean that sort of helped the it's supposed to be set in in the 40s and so the you know the old-fashioned music kind of fits but it also it doesn't feel much like a 60s movie and I, I think the score has a lot to do with that yeah i could see that yeah and, it, and it's also just kind of a, a slick plot driven i don't mean that in a, in a bad way i mean it, it feels like a very hollywood studio product which we were getting less and less of at this point in 1965 yeah and uh 
it works. It still works in 1965, but it's getting less and less common at this point. <laughs> it's a very like a uh, it's a very driving score. Like dun 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 dun. So it's very like action and thriller oriented. I watch a lot of movies from the 30s where they haven't figured out scores yet. So I'm watching. I'm I'm working on a Sherlock Holmes review from 1933, and there's no music at all, and you're just like, please, something, anything. And then this movie, it's like, <laughs> are you guys ready? Dun 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 dun. So, um, I like I said, I have the score. Uh, I just I, I, when I lived in Japan, I just listened to it while I drove around base and just like rocked out to this movie score, which is utterly ridiculous. But that's that's who I am as a person. <laughs> I love that. Well. <laughs> What you were saying, Bart, about the slickness is kind of interesting because that's like what Bosley Crowther hated about this movie. <laughs> um, he he was he didn't buy it because he said, quote, not just because it stretches reason and likelihood beyond the breaking point, because many good and delightful spy thrillers have done precisely that. But what's annoying about this picture is that is the setup for pulling off the plot is just too slick and artificial, too patly and elaborately contrived. Uh, even if such an ingenious and complicated way of trapping spies was actually built up by the Nazis in World War II, it must have been a little more porous. It must have been more fallible. I like. I'm kind of on this one. On one hand, I'm like, well, it was fallible because he failed. Like, <laughs> they, you know, like it really. They didn't get past like a day, which is. Yeah, it's part of the the sort of humor of it, quite frankly. But I'm also like, I don't think the plausibility really matters. Like, I to me, like the slickness. I mean, I like I understand what you're saying. Like, you're not saying that this ruined the film for you, but I don't That's know. I fun. think, yeah, exactly. I yeah. think that there's there's such a degree of um, it, it brings the stakes up. Yeah, <laughs> it it's... makes it enjoyable. And as long as you're buying into it, then like, who cares? It's the classic. Like, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard what's going to happen next. Like, I've got to see how this comes to fruition. Um, yeah. I mean, like, we have, as a country have thrown money at much dumber. <laughs> <laughs> and continue to do so. Yeah, um, so, you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I read uh, James Garner's uh, autobiography a few months ago. Um, oh, okay. And he, was, he, he actually does this really great thing where he has one of his appendixes. He goes through each one of his movies and rates them. And just gives his thoughts on them if he didn't mention them in the autobiography popper. Um, so it's really fun because he gets to this movie and he just, he doesn't talk about this movie. He has like two and a half stars. And he's like, I went on set. I had this idea of how he's going to play this character. And then George Seaton, the director, made this suggestion. and made another suggestion. and made another suggestion. And then by the end of the day, I was driving home and I realized I played him completely differently than I planned to. And that's the sign of a good director. So those are his thoughts on the movie. <laughs> Um, he didn't seem super enthralled with it, but it's it's a real interesting like like B movie, like black and whites, you know, thriller that just kind of got shuffled into theaters. I don't think it made like much of if any impact to anyone. So I don't, this was a great choice. <laughs> I was really I really bought all of this, and like you said, it's just so interesting to see these characters. I mean, in some ways, perhaps this movie is a little too nice to Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in a way, like there really isn't anyone that feels threatening besides a shack, yeah. who, but who, but even then he's this, as you said, he's like this bumbling middle management. Like he's, <laughs> well, that's the idea is that that's what fascism, fascism is built around is just sure. middle management. You can middle manage to death where everybody is afraid to say what they really think. They're afraid to give, uh, Gerber this chance to actually execute his experiments. They rush in with 36 hour time limit. It's this idea that you're just being stuck with these awful bureaucrats with one idea and they can tell you what to do and what to say and what to think. 
it's what's interesting is this idea of Nazi Germany as this nightmare of bureaucracy and mediocrity on some level. And all the, the good people, all the thoughtful people, you know, Gerber with his ideas of helping the victims of PTSD, they get perverted. And I think that's still relevant today where you see governments that go around and take good ideas and just abuse them and misuse them or just ignore what people actually want. It's just really, it's, it's interesting because you don't usually see Nazi Germany, you don't usually see America, you don't see things portrayed this way. It's a very right. unusual picture. So that's, that's why I, I like it so much. Yeah, you're totally right. And also the fact that when the powers that be mess up, you die for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I did want to yeah. say that uh, uh, Rod Taylor's death scene is one of my favorites. Because he, he just decides to... Um, and this is spoilers, obviously. Um, now that I've already mentioned what is happening. But uh, Rod <laughs> Taylor, like he knows he's going to get killed when, uh, when Sheck comes to clean the books, basically. And so he overdoses on drugs. And he's sitting there in a stupor. And Sheck comes in and he immediately realizes where Gardner and uh, even Marie Saint have ran off to. He dashes out. And Rod Taylor is trying, like, oh, shit, I should have thought of this. And instead, he, he tries to pull a gun and he's trying to aim it, but he's so stoned out of his mind. He ends up, like, shooting the ceiling and falling off a balcony. And it's just so, like, melodramatic <laughs> and so angry. It's just so wonderful. I love it. Like, that's one of my favorite things. And you're still rooting for him. You're like, yeah, shoot him. <laughs> shoot him. Come on, man. I also love how uh, Sergeant Schultz from uh, from Hogan's Heroes gets a big heroic mo- moment at the end. You know, the most the most lovable Nazi of all time is uh, shows up in this movie. The before sixty five would be before Hogan's Heroes, I guess. But um, so he was wasn't yet playing Sergeant Schultz, the you know the I know nothing character on that show. But he's he's in this as the guy who's helping uh, Pike and Anna escape, and he gets a good heroic moment at the end. It's almost it's I almost got too much of what I wish for in this movie. There you've you've got a lot of sympathetic Nazis and you don't get the really at all this bloodthirsty Nazi that you usually get that kills without caring and and you know more typical of what we mostly see uh, as far as Nazis go. And and I think well, one of you is saying there's not this kind of threat of death always looming for that reason that you've got these sort of conflicted Nazis who are either, you know, too too cowardly or, or too conflicted in their desires to, to be, you know, truly evil. And so you never quite have the kind of fear for these characters that, that you might otherwise if you had some, some of these, you know, true Nazi type, uh, type characters. I love uh, the... Ernst the Smuggler was um, John Banner, right? Sergeant Schultz. That's his character on Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't watched it. I'm sorry. But he has a great line at the end of this film, and I won't spoil what, when he says it, but he has a great line. He says, don't put me out of business. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it is perfect, like you're saying. It's, it's sort of it's this perfect character summation in, in a single line. And, but, yeah, I don't know. There is a weird, I don't know if I needed more death, but on one hand, like you're saying, I don't know. I'm kind of sick of that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sick of seeing it. I mean, I'm trying to think of other films that do what this movie does with Nazis, and the only thing that's coming to mind right now is The Young Lions, where I feel like you at least have Brando being the the not the sympathetic Nazi. And but I don't know. It's 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 both fascinating and I don't know. Like I almost want to bring up the fact that Roald Dahl's a little bit anti-Semitic, but I don't think that really he didn't write enough. He didn't write a long enough story for that to really matter in this. So. Well, the story I read was that they they were in the process of making this movie, and they'd offered Ivan Marie Saint's role to Patricia Neal, 
Anil was Roald Dahl's wife, and she said, oh, this is actually a lot like Roald's short story. You'd better pay him the story credit. So oh, really? I'm not 100%, yeah, that's, mm. I think I saw that on it was either IMDb or TCMDB. But they were talking right. about, I don't think it was actually based on a story. They just kind of said, hey, this looks a lot like this other story. You just showed this to the wrong actress. So, <laughs> From what I read about the short story, this is quite similar. It's just that it's much more stripped down. It's just the this yeah. idea that more people do things like the that Nazi salutes incorrectly kind of stuff. Like, it's a little more overt. Yeah. And then it ends with uh, the James Garner character, who's also named Jeff, not cracking. Yeah, I actually read the short story. It's online. Oh, really? And it's, it's yeah, it's got some similarities for sure. But it's it's also you could see where it might have got this idea from somewhere else as well. So, mm. but I did want to say uh, one of the things I really like about uh, John Banner, the Ernst character, uh, is that he does get to spit on the villain at the end, which is very satisfying <laughs> to me. Is they just they all spit on him? It's like yeah, they all take turns. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, it's very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, I just want to say, did you guys notice James Doohan with a I did. Line? I have that written down, too, yeah. <laughs> Pops in. He's, he's doing a Scottish accent as well, so. <laughs> See, I missed him completely. I read it after the fact, and I couldn't remember the character. He walks into the room. It's like his uh, paging Mr. Herman kind of line. Like, he just says, like, you're wanted in the other room, sir, and then walks out. And I was like, is that James Doohan? <laughs> For some reason in my notes, I do have Nazi Disneyland written down. Uh, which is an interesting <laughs> observation. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is just a real interesting kind of examination of like German character, of of how governments, how people succeed in governments, how fascism works. And it's all told in this really interesting thriller that's not very thrilling because you already know what's going to happen. <laughs> so it's it's just this very weird, fascinating movie, very offbeat to me. I actually have the poster for this one hanging in my living room and it's Rod Taylor sitting there in front of like big giant text, like give me any American in 36 hours, I'll give you back a traitor. And it's just this very exciting thing. It also has like you, a movie you have to see from the very start, which is another great 60s touch since people didn't do that all the time back then. And don't give away the ending. <laughs> yeah, don't give away the ending. Which we just did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a real, like I just think it's a real interesting weird little gem that um i'm really glad i got the blu-ray from warner archive and it's gorgeous i first saw this probably five six years ago on warner archive instant when that was a thing and i obviously watched it because it's the first one in the library that comes up since it starts the number three and that turned out really well so yeah i feel like if anything you should watch this for a really great scene about how they explain retrograde and interrograde amnesia <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could see how this movie would play better now to a, to a current audience than it may have at the time. Yeah, it's, it does. Uh, it's very, it's not hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for coming on. This was great. And thank you for introducing me to this film. I, I was, I'm so happy about this. <laughs> I feel like every time there's, uh, you know, there's always a point where you're like, ah, I've watched all the good things. And then there's always something you've never seen. That's amazing. So that was awesome. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Do you have anything you want to plug currently besides precode, pre-code.com? Uh, no, that's that's mostly what I do right now is pre-code.com. I've been blogging there for about 10 years. I kind of try to create a resource for films from 30 to 34. Um, try and make those connections for people. It's it's a it's a journey for me, and it's really interesting. Uh, other than that, I'm on Twitter uh, far too often at precode.com. I'm working, I've written a couple of books. Uh, I edited one called Thoughts on the Thin Man, which is probably the one I'm most proud of. 
which is a collection of essays about the Thin Man movies. Um, I also did a book on the Hildegard Withers Mysteries from the RKO in the mid-1930s. I think I've sold at least 20 copies of that, which is more than I expected. Um, and I'm working on one now about the Maisie movies from the late 30s through the 40s, starring Anne Southern. And that's taking a very long time because of 2020, uh, basically. <laughs> I I love to write. I love to share enthusiasm for movies. And I'm, I really enjoy your guys' podcast. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. I saw you just did something on Matching in Uniform, too, which I didn't get a chance to read. But uh, Genocide Project, also, she, she wrote... Uh, a piece on that movie. Yeah, they so just you're... the Kino Lorber mm-hmm. had, was releasing those uh, three queer German cinema films, which were really great. Yeah, I wanted to see those other ones. They I didn't match in because it actually came on TCM, and they had a a really interesting introduction by B Ruby. Yeah, it was, it's you know I always try and focus on Hollywood, but the, it, it, that movie was released in America. Like it got on a thousand screens, I think Raquel wrote, which is insane to me. Oh. So it's just like. You know, might as well talk about it. And there's all sorts of interesting interactions of how foreign movies came to America. It's something I haven't really gone into. I know uh, Doherty's pre-code book goes into it where he talks about how there's a Mussolini documentary um, that was a huge hit in the early 1930s. And I'm just fascinated by that, too. Um, So it's just like something to look at, especially since I've been on a run of really bad movies because... I've started, I've hit a lot of the great ones, and now I'm starting to get to, like, I'm just going to have to watch a lot of 1930s movies, where it is one camera shot for 60, 90 minutes, and some guy <laughs> comes in and sings a song that you can't understand, because the recording technology cannot record them singing them at that point, and, the, you know, it's just, I'm getting into a lot of those. It's not so much fun. <laughs> I was noticing on Letterboxd that you had a whole lot of negative reviews, and I was wondering, why does this guy even watch movies if he hates I, I definitely go through phases. I'll go through, like, six or seven movies, because I watch, I usually try to watch a movie a day, which is not something to be proud of, but, um, you know, I'll go through things where I'll, I'll you know, I'll watch a bunch of Bowery Boy movies, because I'm a sadist, and, um, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll hit, like, waves, um, like, Especially since I have a four-year-old, I have to watch movies with my four-year-old. So some days she'll be like, I want to watch five Dora movies in a row. And you're like, oh, God. Um, and Dora's not that bad uh, compared to uh, she went on a binge where we watched every Tinkerbell movie twice. And they're not good. Um, they're not good. They're they're definitely there to sell you on watching more Tinkerbell movies. They're just actually aggressively bad. Anyway, um, so I do – I love movies. It's just I – when I was in college, I had a notebook that I wrote down every Billy Wilder movie in. I wrote down every Nurse Lubitsch movie in. I go through and cross them out as I finally got to watch these movies. And then there, you know, I started tracking my movies on IMDb in 2004. And so I've, I've tracked every single movie I've watched for 20 year, or 15 years now. And sometimes I'll get like really invested in a project where I've, I've seen every Barbara Stanwyck movie. And I'm like four away from seeing every Cary Grant movie. And I'll feel really good. Or like uh, the Sydney Poitier collection will pop up on Criterion Channel. I'm like, I'm going to watch all these, and I'll feel really good. And then I'll kind of wander away, and I'll just start watching whatever. Because I, I, that's I, I think there's so many like so much fun in just randomly discovering a great movie that it's it's you know like like with this where I watched it because of the first movie that popped up in Warner Archive Instant. You know, I didn't watch it because back then I wasn't as obsessed with James Garner as I was as I am now. I love James Garner; he's the ultimate man. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But like James Garner, you went to the March on Washington. He was just like this very charismatic, like he just saw cowardice as so much as part of the American spirit. He's just a fascinating guy. But anyway, uh, you know, you get on these projects and then you get into these these very long gullies of just like, I'm just going to watch this Jane Russell marathon. Let's see what happens. Oh, God, that was a mistake. And, 
you know, it's that's what movie watching can be. But I, I always find it. I actually figured out at the beginning of this year. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but um, I figured out. I went on Letterboxd and I added all my totals together because it shows you like this is how many movies you've given half a star. This is how many movies you've given one star. I've seen more movies that I don't like than I do like, <laughs> which is very like like to like one third of the movies I've seen in my life I like, <laughs> and that's not great. <laughs> that's that's a bad sign. Are you an if you start it you have to finish it kind of guy? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, but I mean I, I I usually try to finish stuff that I've start like I, but I guess I mean at some point it was just like I'm gonna you know every movie I'm gonna watch I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down and make sure I have time to watch it. You know, now I watch it after the kids gone to bed. When I lived overseas, I was, you know, I had nothing better to do than just sit around and watch movies all day. So obviously I just watched them one after the other. But it's, you know, you, you, you learn stuff from bad movies too. You know, you see way things were made. You, you know, after a while, like I've, I've seen, what was it? 800, 900 movies from 1930 to 34, which, you know, after a while you see like, oh, I recognize the set director. I, I recognize this director. I recognize this character actor who's popping in like, there's, you know, this guy, like, Guy Kibbe's in this one. Well, I know the, who made this film. And then that makes, that's, you know, after a while it kind of blends together. But then that makes the exceptions so much more interesting. Like, you see Guy Kibbe as this kind of, I'm sorry if you don't know who Guy Kibbe is. He's this big, rotund comic actor in, like, the Gold Diggers movies. And he's just this comic relief. He's in his own movies. He even got a few starring roles at RKO as comic relief. And then you see him in Rain with Joan Crawford in 1930, where he actually plays, like, a very serious, helpful role. And you're just like what this is ridiculous um so it's it's you know one of the things about watching a lot of movies that i really appreciate is it kind of gives you a broader palette to understand all these interesting things about like it gives you a more of a depth so you can see where things stand out and what works and kind of what doesn't now i'm not going to say it would make me a filmmaker because i've tried to make movies and they're terrible but it, it gives you an eye and it kind of gives you like a way to examine yourself and your own desires and it's just very exactly it's 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 very reflective on yourself and i I, you know i always try and push myself to what like like i love tcm underground where they're always showing like just weird shit um i love sitting around every saturday morning watching bowery boys movies um i I mean i don't mind watching the tinkerbell movies once it's the twice that gets me but um you know it's getting these experiences getting to see like what people are doing what people are trying and it's just always it's always so fascinating to me um so that's i just love movies there you go that's the podcast i'm 100 percent with you <laughs> i i am so into i mean i don't like to watch movies that i don't like but i think that there is so much i mean i'm i'm an always finish the goddamn movie person because <laughs> you learn so much about yourself if nothing else you learn about as you said film you you see what you don't like i mean there's a stanley kubrick quote uh, i don't always know what i want but i do know what i don't want <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like that's that's it. I think there's so much to be learned about an a, a miserable experience that is at least you know something that's tame. I don't you know, don't go out there and get into a car accident for the experience. But like, you know, to to just be inconvenienced or to be frustrated or angry with a film is is just as useful as when you love it. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm totally with you. I mean, ideally every movie I watch I love, but sometimes there is that like a movie that just doesn't work but has like a really good aspect or turns you on to that that bit actor or some something interesting or you know i hated this film but i loved the cinematography or the yeah. sound mixing was really good and suddenly you're on this other rabbit hole down uh, on imdb for for somebody else that you've just discovered and it's so much fun 
things like a thousand one movies you must see before you die is a you know it's a great starting point but you really don't start to learn about movies until you start digging into the like really mediocre stuff kind of kind of half-assed or you know just the unexpected stuff you know you you uh can't have a fun conversation with people about movies if you've all just seen the same 150 movies right you got to dig deep if you really want to have a wealth of experience and and talking points with people and and i, and I love digging into these obscure 60s movies for that reason it's just like see things that you had never seen before and it's maybe not uh your favorite movie watching experience but it's you you've definitely learned something all right oss 117 greatest film series <laughs> <laughs> can't wait to continue that oh man <laughs> all right thank you so much danny thank you yeah thank you everyone pre-code.com danny do you want to give us off the top of your head another james garner movie to watch from the 60s since you're such a fan i, I love james garner um my other favorite movie that i almost picked for this was grand prix which is another very interesting film i actually saw it at the cinerama dome in la with eva marie saint there Ooh. uh and leonard malton interviewed her afterwards which is great because she comes up after the movie and she's like i don't like this movie <laughs> <laughs> Eva Saint comes up, this isn't my kind of movie i'm sorry it's just not for me <laughs> just like Everybody in the theater is jazzed from seeing this in Cinerama and, you know, these awesome car stunts and everything. And she's like, eh. And then Leonard Malton's like, well, did you have, like, any, like, fascination with you and James Garner? She's like, I wasn't in any scenes with James Garner. Yeah, oh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Yves Montan was her, who mm-hmm. she's playing against. And she's just yeah. talking about, she's just talking, like, I had a husband and a young daughter. And I just had to keep reminding myself that the whole time. <laughs> and <laughs> he was so charming. Um, so yeah, that was a great experience. I love I love Grand Prix just because it's not an easy movie. It's also um, really kind of fits into your guys' milieu of um, milieu, milieu, whatever of um, these really international casts. I mean, it's got uh, Tafshiro Mifune pops in. Um, you've got Garner. You've got you got all these great uh, actors from all over the world kind of doing this. And it's Sean Simarama by Frankenheimer. It's just gorgeous and it's really interesting and really fun. Got a great soundtrack. I own it on record. Um, so I can listen to that just standing around the house, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's so 60s with all the, uh, you know, parts of the screen taken up. You get split screen that then splits again, that then splits again. Yeah, yeah, it just keeps again, getting smaller and, smaller and smaller. And you're yeah. like, it, you know, on the TV, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then you're in the theater, you're like, oh, my God, each of those is the size of my TV. Um, yeah, Grant's Peas is excellent. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really... 60s is a very interesting time. Um, like, I... It's hard for me to sit through a 50s movie at this point. But uh, like a 60s movie, I'm always down for. There's a lot of really great stuff, which is, again, why I enjoy listening to your podcast and and reminiscing and thinking about My Fair Lady versus Mary Poppins and stuff like that, (laughs) you know? Thanks so much. All right, right, Bart. (laughs) I I think we have all the information that we need from him, and we can stop pretending now. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.